Circular economy is great on paper, but only a few manage to turn the model into real business success. Creating a tangible product is never as easy as creating a digital product. It's not as fast to iterate with clients' feedback, and the costs are higher. And when you have finally built the right product, how do you sell it? Online only or in a physical shop? Moju, written M-O-Y-U, produces rewritable notebooks made of stone paper on which you can write and easily erase without traces up to 500 times. I was skeptical about their product at first, but I met the Moju's team in Berlin last year and after trying it, I directly ordered two notebooks for my girlfriend and I for Christmas. Since then, I stopped buying normal paper notebooks and have already filled and erased my notebook twice. Moju has successfully grown in the Netherlands and now they are scaling up internationally. They have more than 20 people and so far more than 200 companies have bought their notebooks that they can personalize for their employees. Plus, you can find them in more than 70 retail stores across the Netherlands. The Moju team believes in a world without deforestation. Together with the NGO Trees for Kenya, they have planted more than 60,000 trees, one for each product sold. My guest today, Rolls Catherier, is the founder of Moju. In this episode, he shared his advice on how to dare start your journey as an entrepreneur. You will learn, among others, about how he stopped being a one-appreneur, writing down lists and lists of ideas he could start and finally start Moju. How to be prepared to fail how to listen to your customers, the importance of nurturing your essential first clients, why and how to bootstrap as much as possible, the pros of investing and branding very early on, and why you shouldn't make too many products. If you are into circular economy, non-digital products, e-commerce, or if you simply want to go from thinking about entrepreneurship to actually starting your own business, you don't want to miss this episode. If after listening to this episode, you want to order one Moju notebook with a 15% discount or to get some Moju notebooks personalized with your brand to offer to your employees, follow the link in the description of this podcast episode. Welcome to Mission First the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. Are you in the first three years of your company? And do you want to save time by avoiding making the same mistakes that lots of entrepreneurs have already done? Then make sure to follow this podcast because you are going to get actionable strategies coming directly from those who have found product market fit and are scaling up fast with their for-profit companies or their NGOs. Think about it as a masterclass about product innovation, business models, leadership, and growth marketing. Bonjour, bonjour. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help entrepreneurs have a bigger impact with this podcast, and I also help mission-driven companies increase their revenue more efficiently with growth marketing and my company, GT Impact. Rul, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? Good. Great to be here, Gilles. You are the founder of Moju. You pronounce it Moju, right? Not Moju, even though it's written Moju. Yeah, we say Moju, yeah. What is Moju exactly? What is the name coming from that? That's the first thing I'm curious about. Well, I think the original concept is that we um, make a statement against the paper industry and make a product wherewith we create nature instead of destroy nature. Uh, so that's, I think, is the basic concept. Because in general, I think we are consuming too much. We started with the name Moju because we want to make a modular notebook. 
So that's why we say module. Sort of a notebook that you can just replace things in a notebook so that you can buy a notebook that lasts a whole lifetime. So that you buy one product now and it lasts forever. We don't have a modular notebook yet, but it's still on our list. So sort of you can replace items in the notebook. So you go to studies and you want to do like a, have an agenda and then you start a family and you want to have a shopping list and like these kind of items that you can sort of keep on readjusting the notebook. And the notebook is made of like stone papers. What is stone paper made of? I checked it on wiki, but I'm sure you can explain it better than what I read. Basically all of our paper till a few years ago was made out of tree or tree waste. And to go from trees into paper, you have to consume insane amounts of water, chemicals, energy. Just, I think a good one is to make one sheet of A4 paper, cost you about 10 liters of water, uh, a shower about 80 liters. So. If you write a few sheets of A4 paper every day, then it's like having a shower. So basically what you can do is you can also make paper from other materials. And one of them is like stone. And that's what we would do. So we make paper from stone waste. That's made out of 80% stone waste from marble mines. And to that is added 20% HDPE, which is a plastic, to bind the stone waste. To make stone paper, there's no water involved, no chemicals involved, and obviously no trees. And the quality of the paper is just way higher so it's it's water resistant it's steel resistant so therefore it lasts it just lasts much longer and we decided to use this stone paper to make an erasable notebook out of it so it's not only better on let's say the production side as an impact wise but also how long you use it so basically we always say you can use every sheet over 500 times but maybe even longer but we don't dare to say forever sort of because that's a claim <laughs> i think we can it's a bit too long you know but i think it I had a placement at my, uh, sort of like one of our sheets on my desk and I used it over 300 times and I was like, oh, I could actually, I think I could actually sell this again. Like it still looks like new. So yeah, this is what I really like about it because I was really doubtful about it's like this erasable ink that the first time you erase it, but then it leaves, uh, it keeps on leaving traces and here the sheets are really like new. Of course there, there is a huge benefit in, in using it on the long term. but is that, it's just a simple question. Is that actually recyclable stone paper at the end? I think this is. Since the moment I started, this is one of our sort of biggest challenges, but things that we really had to think through. Because the beautiful thing about stone paper is that there's a greater to greater certificate, which basically means you can add old stone paper, make plastic parts out of it and makes new stone paper out of it or other products. So as in recyclability, it's much better than regular paper, because if you want to make writing paper out of regular paper, you can recycle it only twice mm -hmm. because the quality has to be very high. You always have to add in a lot of new water and chemicals, trees, etc. Um, the only challenge with stone paper is that the only production is currently in Taiwan. So we import it by boat, but to recycle it again, we have to transport back to Taiwan. And the impact mm -hmm. of that, I think is relatively big, but we know there's a uh, parties or people talking to sort of a production facility in Europe. So basically what we offer our clients is, Hey, when you're done using it, send it back to us. We give you a discount for a new product so that we can recycle it once the capacity is here. In the end, to be honest, since the product lasts so long, no one sent it back yet, but still. I think it's it's good to feel responsible, you know, that if you if you import something here, I think you are responsible for the resources. In terms of impact, what you also try to do, I saw a really like, cool documentary about uh, that you published on LinkedIn about the trees and the, the forest you are actually like, contributing to plant in, in Kenya. So what is uh, the impact you keep on having with that? How is that working? The deeper meaning sort of what we're doing is that if we want to heal ourselves or heal the planet, I think the goal should be to reconnect with nature. So I really believe that nature has such a big benefit for us as humans. 
So the goal has always been to reforest our planet. That's sort of our mission statement. We want to reforest our planet as, as good as possible or as much as possible. And we do this through this product, basically. So what we do now is we work together with Trees for Kenya, which is an NGO based in Kenya, as you expected. <laughs> and they, for every product that we sell, every product that we sell, we plant back one tree. And they do that with the local communities in the area around Mount Kenya. So what we did is we went there in January to shoot a documentary, but also in general to visit the project and see how things are going. Since we are planting trees now for three years, so I'm just curious, like, how does it look, you know? And then, well, you watch the documentary, but I think it's in general, it's become a really cool documentary. But what I really learned is that there's so many extra benefits from a tree planting project because planting a tree makes sense, but what is the effect on the ecosystem? Sort of nature is coming back, biodiversity is coming back, elephants are coming back to the area. You see the water cycle improve, but there's also this indirect effects on the community that the, the women of this community, they get an extra income from planting the tree. So they are able to send their kids to school, buy uh, stationery for their kids. And so this, you see this whole effect on this whole community, which is more than just planting the trees. But I think planting trees is very easy to understand for people. That's it. I mean, I think it was the first time, you know, I, I heard, you know, everybody's talking about planting trees when I'm like, well, not everybody, but like, let's say lots of companies True. are doing that. And it was actually good for me to see what it actually means because I had no idea if it was like just planting trees somewhere randomly, if not randomly, but less like to create a forest. But here it's good to see that animals are coming back. And I think it was really uh, interesting as a documentary. How do you avoid greenwashing and that you really have a positive effect on the world? Well, I think it starts with being open, transparent, and honest. So we always try to show exactly what we do as honest as possible, as good as we know that we do. So what we, for instance, did is we made an impact dashboard and this like a few things, how we make impact. I think it's on the production side for using stone paper, but then it's on the using side because we are replacing regular notebooks by using this notebook and then we plant the tree. I think planting the tree is easy to count, you know, so we just know how many trees we're planting, but the impact, let's say in the lifetime of the notebook, we have to make an assumption about it. Like how many notebooks do we think one notebook replaces? A sheet can be used over 500 times, but it does not mean that one product replaces 500 notebooks, you know? I think it's quite fair to say that at one point people will replace our notebooks as well. So what we did is we just made an impact meter with the best guesstimate that we have. We said like, this is, these are our assumptions, you know, and then we explain why we chose these assumptions based on some data that we had, that we got from, let's say, larger companies that said like, okay, we have 30,000 employees, we use 100,000 notebooks every year. So then we know like, okay, on average, a person uses so many notebooks a year. And that's sort of our starting point from the impact. And what we do is every year we try to improve it, like talk with customers. So how many notebooks did you actually replace? And I think by just being open and honest about it, like this is what we think the impact is what we're making. Anyone who wants to add on it or has a better estimate or idea whatsoever, please let us know because we, we just try to be good. So it's not our goal to greenwash, yeah. So if we got a life cycle analysis comparing notebook carbon footprint impact versus a normal paper notebook. Exactly, yeah. So sort of the start of our impact, I think what we use is a research that do, being done by Kiwa. And they made analysis of just the production side in stone paper in Taiwan and paper in, let's say, Scandinavia, because most paper comes from there. And the data that comes from there, that is sort of our starting point from one paper versus one stone paper. But I think that's also quite clear. It's mainly the, the production side is clear and the tree planting is clear, but it's mainly 
how long that person uses the notebook. And I think a big impact is being made there, but that, that's based on an, uh, an estimate, let's say. Yeah, yeah, but estimates are important. I mean, you make a lot of assumptions when you make life cycle analysis. So this is why I wanted to know, like, the positive impact is proven oh. on that side. And this is how you started the idea, basically. Yeah, maybe to, just to add, I mean, we would want to do a life cycle analysis or do something with true pricing. But in the phase where we were, let's say when I was investigating this, because in the beginning, I think you want everything to be perfect. But at one point, you're like, we cannot invest now, let's say 30,000 euros in the life cycle analysis because then we're basically bankrupt, you know? So we sort of started with the best data that we had. Yeah. Fair enough. And you're talking about the stats and that's a really good point to jump in right now. So how did it start the first idea until the company like incorporation? What is the timeline looking like and what's the story behind it? Okay. So basically I was working for uh, a large corporate and I was just seeing the paper waste. So that was sort of a trigger for me. And I was trying other erasable notebooks that did, that just did not work for me or that just did not give me this paper, paper band feeding. So I just noticed that I bought them and they ended up in the cabinet again. Then I moved to Kenya for a year and lived there. And when I came back, I sort of said to myself, no matter what I'm going to do, because I didn't know yet, I'm going to invest my time in setting something up to help nature, let's say. And then I already heard about stone paper, I already heard, I, I knew that we were wasting so much paper in large companies, so that sort of one plus one made two. So I decided to, yeah, start with the notebook to create nature, sort of, that's, I think that was the original concept. And then I found a product in China that was an erasable notebook that actually did work for me. Made from stone paper too? Well, yeah, I think that's sort of the transparency thing is that they said it was, but then later on I found out it was not. And then I've been selling that for... A bit, and then at one point I was like, okay, it doesn't feel... So I thought it was stone paper, was selling the stone paper, and then it was not stone paper. So then I said, okay, I stopped this. I'm going to do it myself now. I'm going to import stone paper, produce the notebooks, test it. And then sort of the way to get here, where we are now, it was quite a nice but bumpy road. So the first product that we produced, what we did is we borrowed money from our parents, set up a first production, and then basically this whole first production failed. So then we had like... 1200 notebooks where from we 400 we set. What we thought would be cool is we didn't want to use a wire vendor at that point because and we want to make a book. And we want to have the book with a open back so that if you open it, it it's really nice and flat on the table. So we sort of experimented a bit with that and we thought we made a very cool book. And then just before we went into production, we like, hey, we should make it even sturdier. So we added like, let's say an extra tape to make it even sturdier so that it would last longer. But this extra tape made that the cover of the notebook did not really stick to the tape. So we sent the notebooks to people. And then after a few weeks, they said, hey, the, the cover is coming loose. And then you sort of have to make a decision. And since we really believed that, yeah, we really, I think I really believed in the stone paper and the erasability of it. And people really liked it. We decided to offer all the clients like, hey, we're making new notebooks. You can get one for free. Keep the old one. You can get your money back. Keep the old one or send it back and uh, get your money back. To understand the bootstrapping part, you borrow some money from your, your parents and, and friends. You make the first production batch. Had you sold the product before already making the first batch or did you produce it, try to sell it and then like uh, realize after the, the, the mistake was there? Exactly. Yeah. So we, we found out after we were selling, but we did make a little, we did make a little batch before it, but that had a wire bender. So binder. Yeah. So we. We made a small batch of 200 books and then we make a bigger batch of 1200 books were completely different and they sort of filled. <laughs> and then at the same point while we were doing that, Corona came. So we sort of had, we had this 
business to consumer uh, webshop kind of thing. We were selling like some notebooks, but it was more like a nice to have for us. Our focus was on the business to business side because we, as I explained, like I just saw in the big companies that they use so much paper still. And it's just, I think paper is still just such a functional product in companies that you want to you go in a meeting, write things down, you have a to-do list, someone calls you, but all, most of these notes, you don't, you, you don't look back at it anymore, like a week after, but still nice to have something to write on. So actually the waste there is quite high. So we have this, I don't know, super non-optimized webshop where we just sell like a notebook to friends. And then we try basically to sell that product to companies and get in touch with companies, show the product and say like, Hey, we can make a customized notebook for you. We can add a cover to you, whatever you want, tell your story through our notebook. And I think things were going really well. I think so we were in touch with like about 50 companies, which like, I said, the larger big corporates from Netherlands and then Corona came. And I think in one week, all of those companies said like, Hey, still cool product, but since no one is coming to the office, we're not buying any office supplies at this point. So we'll get to back to you in a few months when Corona is over. Yeah. <laughs> Which so lasts. how did you survive that part? Well, we still had a little bit of money left. So what we did is we sort of accepted the fact that there was COVID and we sort of accepted the fact that we're probably not selling to any companies yet. So we said like, okay, but still everyone is going to work at home now. So still probably people like to write things down at home, but it's also going to be a bit of a, can imagine it's a bit heavy for people to start working from home. You were like probably roommates working on a table. I think two days later, we launched a new product, which was the, we call it the power placement. That was just this sort of funny idea that I think that we had a placement that was like, because you don't travel. So you sort of, you keep the placement on your table. So you don't have to take the notebook with you. So it's just something set on the table and had a to-do list and a week planner and some apart for notes. And then we said, maybe we should make it a bit lighter sort of because you're working from home. So we decided to put on the back of the placement, some games, draw something, Sudoku, these kind of things that sort of you're working, working, working and at one point, like I'm so done with working and you flip the placement around and you can play some games to sort of chill a bit. And we launched that. So we had, a, we had the idea when Corona came and I think we launched the product a week later, sort of like it went super fast. And I think people really liked that sort of, ah, okay, cool. These guys are came up with a solution so fast. And since we launched that product, obviously on the web shop, that was also sort of the point to also decide that, okay, people are working from home. So everyone's probably shopping online. So then we invested way more money and efforts in improving the web shop, setting up marketing, these kind of things. Besides, let's say the placemat sales, we also start selling more regular notebooks to clients, to customers. When did you start exactly a timeline? Which year? 2016, 20? So the first product we had in December, 2019. Okay. And you are already more than 20 people now. Yeah. So we were 25 people, but not everyone is full time. So we had quite some. We have some interns and we also have some people that were intern and then continue studying and work for two days, but still everyone is a, is a person with opinions and thoughts. So this is a good point to jump to the next part, which is, you know, you send me a list of do's and don'ts and on the topic on how to dare starting as an entrepreneur, I think you already tackled a couple of, you know, challenges you had here. So let's go through these advices. And the first one is like, do start entrepreneurship. Could you like iterate a bit on this one? Yeah, I think for me, it was one of the best decisions ever to do start entrepreneurship. And I think the reason is that as when I was studying, since I was, I don't know, 19, I was continuously writing down ideas. I have like 500 ideas on my phone that I could start something with, but I never really dared to because I always thought like, I'm not the type of entrepreneur. I'm not super commercial, you know, and I also think also a bit maybe afraid 
because then I knew like, okay, if you're the founder of the company, you have to give pitches and be on stages and I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't know, these like small voices in your head that make you not do it. And now looking back at it, I think it's the best decision ever. It's like, obviously there's like a lot of challenges that you have to go through, but I think there's also the fact that what I really like is that I can put my creativity and just act on it. I have an idea and do something with it. And then you see the fruits of it and you learn from it and you do it again. And you're sort of like super fast. You learn a lot. You also feel a lot. And in the end, you're, I really feel we're adding value, let's say, to the world. So I think for me, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. What is the trigger? I mean, how did you, for this specific idea, knew you, you had to go now? How did you overcome the small voices that you had for this particular idea? For me, I just felt this guilt all the time that I just see sort of that the world is on fire. And you know that the world's are fine. I was constantly talking to people about it, like, guys, like we're cutting down so many forests and all, like all the, the effects on, let's say, how we as a humans treat this planet. But I felt this guilt that I was not actually doing things. Yeah, I was separating plastic and like, like small things. But if I talk about it so much, then I should also just do it, you know? And I think overcoming a bit of the fears and stuff is like, yeah, fuck it. It felt a bit like it, the problems that we have is a bit bigger than Let's say my ego and fears, you know, so I just have to go for it and learn along the way. Which brings us to the second, do you send me second advice, which is prepare to fail. I think we, on a monthly basis, we always get, tell people on our team as well, like if it costs under an X amount of money, just do it, try it. Even if you fail, let's share the learnings that we had from it and learn all from it. Then it's probably worth more money than we sort of invested in or maybe that we lost or the cost that we had on it. And I think the failing part has to do with the fact that if you put something in the market or you try something, I think that's also the only way to get feedback and to actually learn about, okay, so we introduced this product that had a production mistake. By doing that, we learned that, okay, this is, we talked to customers, we got shitloads of feedback. And so the two things that we learned is, yes, the product was not perfect, but yes, people really like the stone paper and the raceability part of it. So it's also, even if it costs money, it also motivates us to continue on this journey. And if we were maybe perfecting this notebook before we introduced it, then that wouldn't have happened. Yes. I mean, this is a common mistake. I think most of the entrepreneurs I see who, are, who don't make it, it's actually one of the reasons. If you iterate quickly and if you have the right team, there is no reason to, I mean, failing is part of it and the reason you, you won't find the, the right thing to do, or actually the right thing that the customers <laughs> actually want. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And talking about customers, you said the third advice is listen, listen, listen. <laughs> so I love that part. So can you tell me a bit more about it? Well, actually this, this podcast, I'm sending a lot, I'm talking a lot, I'm not listening so well, but the point is that we talk a lot about, let's say sales. If you look at traditional sales, uh, more to B2B, we always go into, in a business meeting with, we say to each other, ball me, because we both like to talk. Like, okay, questions, questions, questions. We're just going to ask questions because we want to sort of learn the problems from the clients and listen. And now what's really the problem from the clients? How can we help or not help with the notebook? Instead of just sending how good we are, you know? So I think in B2B sales, it's, it's like that. But I think also in B2C, we, we send out a lot of customer reviews, but we also send clients, every client we send type forms. Like, hey, can you give some feedback on the product? That's not public, but they still, I think they feel open to say what they think about the product. And it gives you a general feel where to improve in the product, let's say. In B2C or in B2B, the type forms? Both. But B2B, I think B2B, we can still improve it a bit because we always send the type form to the person who buys the notebooks, but that's actually not the person that are using the notebook within the company. So what we do often is with 
Let's say if you work with a really big client, then we say, shall we send you 20 notebooks, including a type form, send it to 20 people in your company, let them use it for a month, let them give feedback, and let's keep, let's take that as a starting point, whether it's interesting for you as a company or not. And it also gives us a bit of ammunition, I think, too. Even if the person who buys a notebook thinks that the notebook's a bit expensive, if we can get like 20 people saying that they really like the product, it also improves our sales pitch as well. But what I mean with sort of listen is like, especially to the B2C bar, but also B2B is that I think we have a super good idea of what customers want, sort of. And sometimes something pops up like once and we know like, okay, one out of 10,000, we're not going to act on it. But if I look at my feedback forums, one out of four people say, can you find a solution for the cleaning cloth that's now, let's say, loose with the product, like, and then we know like, okay. So that's just, it's quite obvious, you know, but you're also so much in the business that you sometimes forget about the obvious things. Talking about the fourth do's and don't, you said first clients are essential, nurtures them. So can you tell me a bit more about that one? I think maybe the, the example that I gave with the let's say the product mistake that we make in the beginning, we could have decided to sort of say like, okay, well, I mean, we keep the money and uh, that's it. But we decided to give them the best solution that we could. And I think the sort of the, we're in the same process now going, since we're expanding to Germany and France, we're having the same journey now. So as I said, we sell, sold 70,000 notebooks in Netherlands with it. You think sort of like, okay, copy paste to Germany, and then we can sell even more in Germany probably. But we noticed that the customers from these countries are very specific. They have different demands. They want different things. So we rather, we decided to start small and learn a lot from these clients and improve the proposition for them and then sort of scale from there. And obviously, I don't know, sometimes packages get lost, you know, and then we send an, a new one to the client and then later they get to and we say like, hey, keep it, send it to a friend, you know, that you can make happy with it. And it's, it's like not commercial, let's say, because we're probably not earning money on that, but we do feel that if we make a first group of super happy clients in a new country, that's sort of our starting point because people start to talk about it, see maybe like, oh, this brand is different than the dropshipping gadget brands that try to come into a market. Do you have any specific, as you are expanding right now to Germany, do, have you already noticed some experience you can share with listeners here of like how specific the, the market is, for example, and what you've done to, what challenges you, you faced? Yeah, sure. So we started expanding at the same time in France and Germany, which is I think uh, two of the biggest countries in Europe. So it's a big challenge. What we learned is, let's say in the two countries specifically, is that German people are more interested in the quality of the product. How is it made? Is it of good quality? Does it last long? Is it, does it work well? And for us, it, it, I really believe it does. So let's say we more, we should more emphasize more on that part because that's what the clients find more important there. And offense, the language of love, let's say they, they are more triggered by the story behind it, like the beauty of the nature and what's the story of the brand and so we're sort of learning, like there's so many angles where, how we can promote or talk about our product. And I think those are so, so different at this point. So it means you're adapting your website as well in terms of communication. If you take a typical landing page, like for the German market is very different than a, German, a landing page for, for the French market. Yeah, we are, let's say in the process of that. Yeah. I also learned, but I don't know, okay, this is more an opinion, but what I Someone told me that the word sustainability is not so cool anymore in Germany. If you say you're sustainable, you're probably greenwashing. So that's also something that you have to prove that you're sustainable, not by saying it, by just, but sort of by showing it and doing it. So that's also an angle that we want to 
But I think it's a bit in line with the, with the other angle. But I think that's also one of the points that's different. Very good ones. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I mean, greenwashing is everywhere, but some some countries are more sensitive because of how much they are advanced and how much the market is actually using it. How much the companies, if there are already a lot of examples of greenwashing, then people are more sensitive to it. Bringing me to the fifth do you send me is like, you decided to bootstrap, so basically do bootstrap as much as possible. Can you tell me a bit more about this? This one is also quite obvious for a lot of entrepreneurs, but it's sort of cash is king. So I think the goal for a lot of companies is to acquire finance. But basically what you're doing is you're sort of uh, setting yourself up for a debt. And it's always like a very shareable, like, hey, we acquired X amount of money. And what we did is we said we want to get investors aboard as late as possible, because obviously the company is worth more than and preferably no investors because then we can keep on doing it the way that we think is good. So due to that, we, we said we have a product that we can sell. How can we make sure on a monthly basis that we can generate some cash flow from the product that we have and grow from that money instead of get like early investors on board. And then we sort of at one point decided like, okay, we have X amount of money. We have to go through it until the end of the year. And it really kept us focused on sales and marketing. So every morning we said, follow me. We said to each other, okay, what we're going to do this today. Okay. First in the morning, we spent at least three to four hours on getting the word out, which meant doing outreach, doing LinkedIn posts, setting up marketing, whatever, just because we felt this pressure. If we're not doing sales or marketing at this point, then there's no money coming in and then we're bankrupt, you know? So I kept the super focus on, unless the commercial side of the business, uh, in the beginning. And due to that, at one point we're having quite, I mean, steady revenue growth and traction because we could show that at the one point we got financed by the bank because they just saw like, oh, these guys already have numbers, you know, they're like not early stage anymore. There's cash, there's money coming in. And I think therefore we had a relatively, the cheapest variant of money is I think probably for, is a bank loan, you know, so and we were able to acquire that. But I think it's also a decision that you have to make because we sort of said to each other as well, like, okay, we're not in our private life. We're not going to do anything crazy, you know, like. How much money do you need? How much money do I need? What's the minimum that you can live off? And yeah, never do like crazy things. You know, we never went for lunch together outside because we're not like, yeah, fuck this, like 30 euros, you know, okay, better keep that money, buy a bread for two euros. And you know, like always constantly reminding us like the money that we don't take out of the business, we can reinvest in marketing budgets so we can grow. Yeah. And I think, I think that's also sort of a healthy way. I mean, you don't have to, you should not do that for like five years because at one point you also <laughs> just like have a normal life. But I think for a few years, everyone can do that. Especially when you're working for a mission like yours. I mean, that's just a real life. When you do something you like and you feel the mission is behind it, that gives you the energy to, to go over these sacrifices. True. Talking about marketing and, and LinkedIn and sales, what is the proportion B2B to B2C now revenue wise? 50-50. So what are the the strategies, like the channels that actually worked best for you to grow these two parts? Is it, you know, cold, you mentioned cold emailing. So what would you recommend other entrepreneurs who are you know, selling a product in B2B and B2C to use? Once uh, someone said, wants to be like spray and pray, I really like that one. It's sort of like, just try all marketing channels that are there. So that was what we also did. I know, find an email list of 500 schools send them an email, okay, zero responses, okay, does, does not work. Add people on LinkedIn that you know via via, send them a message, okay, it does not work. In the end, I think what we learned is that our best marketing strategy is B to C to B. So in our first year, when we start selling the, let's get Corona, introduce the power placement, we introduce a new book, 
And then all of a sudden in the Christmas months, we grew exponentially. And it was mainly from businesses and all those people in the businesses, we asked them like, how did you find us? And it was all the answer was always me or a colleague bought this notebook. They really liked it. So they introduced it as a Christmas gift. So then the year after we said, we should engage more with these clients too. And there's also probably a lot of, so if you sell 50,000 notebooks, there's probably like 49,000 that don't even know that they can use it in their company, you know? So then with every customer, the sixth email that they get is like, hey, did you know that you can customize a notebook for your company? And then around Christmas time, we add an extra flyer to the product, like, hey, this is an example of how you can uh, personalize a notebook. And for us, I think that's the best, that was the best marketing strategy. And at one point, we also got a lot of happy B2B customers. So a bit more social proof. And we asked them, can we make a video? Can we use this video? So then it was more like, I don't know, it's not really user-generated content, but we could just showcase a lot of good examples of companies that use our product. And we could also advertise that. So I think that's the second one. At one point we are like, very cool names with videos that we shot at their company with them telling how cool the product is and then using that as a marketing. So word of mouth. So I like the fact that you said, so B2C to B, getting into the big companies by having the, the people falling in love with the product and talking about it to the companies. Like, And then also something very important that I hear here is listening again, listening to the clients, because I think lots of companies would be just happy one of the trends you have in or in sales, or the easy trap you can fall into in sales is like, oh, you're super happy to have a customer or something, and then you don't, you're afraid to asking him too many questions. And actually, if you didn't ask them how they find you, then you would not have like figured out a strategy. So I think that's just the, the, what I would take from your answer here. But I, I think the phase where we are now is that you sort of found a bigger group of people, you found a strategy that worked, and I think... For me, I really feel the urge again to reinvent ourselves a bit and start growth hacking again, you know, because we have so much more data now and like, let's, let's keep on trying, you know, like maybe we can find a strategy that even works better than this one. So I think we now, last few weeks, we invest quite a lot of time, like coming up with new ideas, coming up with new strategies, like let's keep on testing. It doesn't mean that the method that we found now is, and it works, it doesn't mean that it's the best one, you know? Totally agree. But I think that what's important here is the processes. Having some processes in place, like, for example, you know, listen to the client. So knowing and make assumptions, trying a lot of testing. But if you do testing without having assumptions and without knowing what you test and without gathering the knowledge and, and sharing them, then you basically are wasting your, like, not wasting your time. But I think successful companies is about, in that case, being able to, like, you set an assumption. You say, okay, I'm going to test that channel. I'm going to test that strategy. How am I going to measure if this is going to work? Have some KPIs in advance. Then you test it very quickly and then you document the, the knowledge. And I think when you do that, the processes of doing that is actually the key to the success. Then it doesn't matter. You will find like the right strategy. I mean, this is what I, I love to do myself and my clients as well. Yeah. That's basically what you do all day, right? <laughs> that's what I try to do. I mean, I try to convince my clients to, to yeah, work yeah. that way. Like, especially when you scale up, I think in a company, processes like that are important to be actually processes and not just, you know something you do kind of around because when you are two, three, four people, you all have the knowledge what's going on in your company. But when you start to be 20, 30, 40 plus, then you want to make sure that when everybody tests these things, you document them somewhere and you actually, it takes time to document that. It's way easier to say, yeah, I'm actually, I, I'm going to jump to the next experiment. I know what's going on now. But the problem, if you don't document it, is it's not beneficial in the long term. Even a good advice for us, because I think the documentary part, especially now we're growing indeed, a lot of things are still in everyone's heads, sort of like we remind, <laughs> like 
I know, I know what works, but if a new person comes in, then I don't want to take a whole week to let them know what works. But I think for your clients is that, I mean, the experimenting part is sort of an investment, you know, so it can take like months and months and months and you're probably spending a lot of money and time before you can really find like what works. So it also comes probably with some patience and can imagine for your clients as well that maybe you start working in and then two months later, it's like, we still don't have any, like, no, it's not working, you know, but it's more about the process, what you said. And then at one point you find, okay, this works and then you can keep on growing from there. Yeah. I think Will Wells, the founder of uh, Hummingbird, I think the, the episode like 19th of, of Mission First, he said something very interesting at an employee level when he says, when you hire the right people, the most difficult part is to hire people who can reinvent themselves at every stage of the company growth, because being able to be super quick uh, and, and super agile and not think too much and to react a lot is important at the beginning, but then every time you start to grow, you need to be able to go into more of these processes. And when you have the right team, management team, founder team, you are basically able to change and to actually adapt. And I think it, it's valid at the company level as well. For all your employees, yeah. they, they need to be able to see that the way we were working six months ago, it was perfect, but it's about uh, learning to have a step back and say, okay, now what can we do to improve? And we probably need to yeah. adapt. I actually like to work most with people that are very open to feedback as well. And also trying to be open yourself to feedback as well. Some people are like, okay, thanks for sharing. I'm going to improve, you know, that. And then you actually know that like we're growing together. Yeah. And if someone feels a bit attacked or assaulted, if you say some feedback, they're like, this you can still grow a bit there. Yeah. There is a cool book for that, which is called uh, Radical Candor. Uh, I love it. And it's all about actually how to give and how the company to get into this feedback loop and to not take it personally. Bringing me to jump on the sixth advice you sent me, which is looking back, I would have dared to invest more in branding earlier. Super interesting topic for me too. So <laughs> let me know. Can you tell me what you were thinking in there? Yeah. It, so I think in, when we started the, I said you have 5,000 euros in marketing budget, and then it's like we either invest 5,000 euros in showing people the product, or we can invest 5,000 euros in improving better logo, better story around the choose our colors, improve our website. I don't know if I would have done, I can't really reflect on it. If I would have invested all the money in branding, if we could still have this growth, let's say, but looking back at it, I think having a very strong brand that I think we got, we are getting there now, sort of like our brand, like we're, who we are, where we stand for, but it, it really helps on the conversion part, let's say. So it's sort of this investment that you don't know what's coming from it, but to have it very clear helps you in the long term. I agree with you. Branding, when you do it properly, it's proven that people for the brands they love are willing to pay more like the top leader brands in every market. People are always willing to pay 20 to 30% more because of their brand. So it's increased profit basically for that. But do you have right now a way of like splitting up the budget? Do you, for example, say, okay, we have a yearly budget of 50,000 euro or 200,000 euro or 10,000 euro. We take 20% and we invest it in branding. So like documentaries and like basically pure brand stories or also like logo type and uh, the whole visual branding. Mm -hmm. And you take 80% for performance marketing, for example. So how do you do now? Yeah. So we do have allocated quite well, like what are our marketing budgets, which are always a percentage of the expected revenue in that market. And then let's say, so we want to grow in Germany. So we say 30% of our expected revenue will be our marketing budget for that month. And in the Netherlands, it's less, but we don't. Back in the days, we had like a 10% of percent, 10 of that should 
be around branding, but more about awareness, like getting the word out about how many trees we cut down and what what's, what's the impact of. Let's say this documentary that we want that we made. Obviously, that costs quite some money, and it's uh, it just makes sense. I think that we did this, you know. So there is no there's no discussions internally that we should or should not do it, you know, because like this is so strong to get the story out. I don't have an exact answer budget wise. It feels a bit like things that make sense. We just do sort of. Yeah. Talking about the last do you send me, which is don't make too many products. So can you explain me here, <laughs> and 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 can you explain me how you prioritize actually your ideas there? Yeah, so as I said, if you have a creative mind and then you start thinking about paper and erasable paper, you can make thousands and thousands of products. Like if you only think about coaches or templates that coaches uses, this is Model Canvas or I don't know, like there's like probably 500 templates that you can, a thousand templates that you can make, but also like where, where do you use paper at home? Like ah, shopping lists and this and this and this and this, and you can make so many products. In the beginning, I really like to, to do that. Like, well, and if we have ended this and we have ended that and we've ended that, but like reflecting on it, let's say after one and a half years, we sort of concluded, oh wait, but 95% of our sales is coming from just the notebook. So I was working on making a new product again. And then I thought, but maybe I should invest this time in improving the product that's actually really working well, you know? I think it's with marketing. I think it's with, with products. It's, I think it's with a lot of things. I think it's always cool to, to keep on testing and doing new things, but it's sort of a balance of how much money and time you spend on each. So even in product development, I would say like 90% of my time, I invest in the products that work well and 10% of my time I invest in just experimenting, doing cool new things. Same goes for marketing probably. You have like a winning strategy, you invest most money in there, but at the same time you want to be around that, you want to be testing a bit, you know? I love the Pareto rule that you mentioned. I think that's how high, like, uh, always putting 80% of your energy where you know this is actually working and then you yeah. take 20% or less trying to experiment. Thank you for all these advice. They're really like super, super. And thank you for sharing so much of you know your strategy because this is very insightful. I'd love to go through the usual question I ask my guests. And the first one is, what is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? I don't know if you got this right, but I think... Just stay true to yourself, sort of practice what you preach internally to how you work with your people, externally how you work with your clients. It's still practice what you preach, I think. But I don't know if it's like the best advice or it's probably it's like a, a lot of things that came together. It's something that but you try end, to apply. If you just, yeah. Which book, talking about paper, <laughs> which book would you recommend, you know, entrepreneurs like you to read? Yeah, well, I think the best book, but it's more about sustainability that's ever been written is the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible from Charles Eisenstein. I love that book. For me, that's such an eye-opener. Yeah, I think it's a bit of more spiritual, but it also has a lot of systematic things that we do. It's, it's basically what he explains is that we sort of have to find that we are super connected with nature. And if we understand that we really connect to nature, to each other, we would treat nature and each other differently. And then from that sort of starting point, he goes on in, but how, why are we still using a capitalist, capitalist system and how did, how did that grow? And what's the effect on us as an individual, if we were like super money driven, but also like politics and he also comes with a solution. Like how can we change, let's say this, like, what should we do? And for me, I always, for me, it's a bit of a Bible, you know, like it gives me hope. I love, I really like the concept of, I really believe that we're all connected, you know, so. The more beautiful world our hearts know is possible from Charles Eisenstein. Very good. He also wrote the sacred economics. My background is in economics. And for me, a lot of things that I learned that just did not make sense for me. And after reading these books, they did make sense. 
they really like that. This really resonated with me. Very good. Thank you for sharing. I will share the link in the resources of the episode. Do you have any talking not about books, but podcasts or blogs or influencers to uh, recommend in that category? Yeah, but they are, they are Dutch. So I always listen every week to Hoeivoer, which is about the, the talk with growing entrepreneurs. That's my weekly dose. I always just listen to that podcast because the entrepreneurs that they talk about, the, the talk with there are, it's sort of where we are or one step further. So it, for me, it's always like inspirational, like the lessons. And can you tell us one thing about yourself that I wouldn't be able to find online? Before I started with entrepreneurship, when I was working at the bank, I was very into spirituality. So I did a lot of books and Zen Buddhism and these kind of things. And I noticed, I've been noticing the last few weeks that I sort of completely forgot about the sort of personal development part because I was so, so involved in this company. I think I've been thinking a bit about it. Like in the end, it's a bit of a, I, I sort of chose a different growth path. I think the one more like practical, like being in, in this commercial market, I think, but it also, I think for me, what I noticed is that since I don't invest so much time in personal growth at this point or in different things that, I, that interest me, it also makes me insecure a lot. And often like being insecure, I can find solutions in let's say the spiritual path, but I'm not using that anymore, let's say. So I'm, I'm very easy, like in the weekends, go for body, you know, like clear my mind, like these kind of things. And I think the things that I learned last week, again, also sort of reminded me, like, I think the spiritual journey is always like good to keep yourself sane, you know? But it's a hard balance, right? I'm in the same, I, I went to, I learned Vipassana, meditation uh, in 2019 and at the beginning I was trying to so meditate two times half an hour an hour a day and when you do it you realize how efficient it can be for yourself but when you try to grow your own company as you're doing as, as I'm doing as well and you are like energized by what you're doing it's also easy you want to have a lot of impacts and it's very easy to forget these things I mean I've I been mean, a really really bad example myself of like the past months of putting all my energy in on the company itself and not, you know, doing enough meditation, doing enough sports. So what is it that last week you said you had a reminder? What, what was that reminder? Or how did you realize that you shifted away a bit? It's, it's good to sort of reflect like, now what I noticed with myself, I think is that I'm just giving away a lot of energy, sort of. I'm giving a lot to, let's say, the people that I work with or people around me or just in general, let's say. For me, it also feels a bit giving back to the planet, sort of. But in that sort of forgetting yourself, and I noticed, I was just reflecting on myself. Do I like myself as a person more now than I did, let, let's say, four years ago? And I was, at some point, yes. And at some point, I was like, I don't know. You know, like, back in the days, I was much more involved in my people around me in my private life, you know? Like, I knew everything from everyone around me, like, how they're doing, why they're doing, and they're like deep conversations. And now I notice a bit like, oh, I don't do that so often anymore because I'm so, like, stuck in in work, let's say, you know, like, oh, okay. That's something that I would want to do a bit more and, and not, not, not so judgmental about myself. It's just, I know, sort of notice, like I improved a lot on this part and now, and I forgot about it a bit about it in that part. And now I should, I think it's, it's time to grow there again. Taking, being able to take a fresh look at yourself all the time. Thank you for being so transparent. To finish on this, what is your ask to the people listening to this? You know, podcasts, entrepreneurs, the companies listening to this podcast. So where can they find you? What can they do? And I'm sure you have plenty of things you can share on that side. First of all, what I would really like is people that were listening to this podcast, feel free to connect. But I would also love to learn, like, what do you hear when you listen to this podcast? Like what resonated with you and whatnot. Also, I could talk for 10 hours about what we do, but 
I don't know, maybe some things stick with people and some things don't. If you really like the, what we talked about, I would also love you to try the product and give feedback on it. And I know, feel very open to connect and, and share what you think. So people can find the products on a MoYu, so M-O-Y-U minus notebooks.com. You have, you offer different kind of notebooks and uh, that they can, you can buy per piece, but you can also offer, uh, you sell in B2B and discuss for companies who are interested to have a, you know, a whole batch of notebooks uh, and probably try them before, as you explained today in this episode, you can customize them. So as we said, we're going to have some special one made from mission first. We're going to order soon. And so you can have the whole cover and back of the, the covers customized to your own company. And so can people reach out also on LinkedIn or what's the easiest way? LinkedIn is the best way. Okay. And last thing I would really like if people would share the documentary that we made, because I think there's a beautiful story in it, or at least watch it. And if you want, share it with people around you, because I want to make more awareness about tree planting projects and the effects on, let's say the people and the environment. I will first share it in the coming days too. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I commit to it now. Roll, yeah. thank you very much for your time today. Wishing you all the best with Moju and yeah, have a nice day and see you hopefully soon in, in some ah. event or in Berlin. Thanks. Amazing for having me and being having this talk. Really enjoyed. And it was soon in Berlin. So let's have a coffee then. Great. Thanks. If you like this episode, you can share it with your friends because sharing is caring and you can give it a five star on Apple podcast because this really helps to make it more visible to other entrepreneurs working on a better future like you. If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry and your startup stage. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.